0: Take your Bible out with me this morning and if you would turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and keep your pages handy as we scan through portions of chapters 1, 2, and 3 this morning. I want to bring a message entitled, The Gospel Truth. The Gospel Truth. At this time of the year, uh, Easter, I want to... Help us to understand the various themes that we celebrate at Easter, the importance of it, Uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll begin in verse 13 of Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. To a, deba- to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless... Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. will be revealed. Father, this morning I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to a very revealing portion of Scripture, a very hard-hitting portion of Scripture for society to hear and for the church to hear. Lord, we thank you for your truth that you love us enough to give us your truth, to give us your word. Now, as Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify us on your word, your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through a study of the Gospel of Mark. And as we've been looking at that study of the Gospel of Mark, I I think of that occurrence in Mark chapter 8. Where Jesus took his disciples to a region of the country known as Caesarea Philippi. It was an area of Israel in the northern portion that for many years had given themselves over to various forms of idolatry. And Jesus carried his disciples into that region and he asked them the question of the ages. He said, whom do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up for the uh, group and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after Peter said that, of course, Jesus pronounced his, his blessing upon Peter saying, Man has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has made this clear to you. Well, it's interesting what happens right after that section. Mark 8 says, immediately Jesus took his disciples aside and said, we're going into Jerusalem now. And as we go into Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be rejected. He is going to be mocked and he's going to be crucified. But then he's going to raise again on the third day. Jesus went to Jerusalem despite knowing what was going to happen to him there. Now folks, why would he do that? Why would he go to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be crucified there? Well he did so because as the Bible says, Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. The gospel is the fact that God's Son died in your place and in my place that you and I might be forgiven of our sins, that we might be reconciled to a holy God, and that we might have peace with God. This is why He died. And the Bible says He rose again, the firstfruits of those who were raised. first fruits being the promise of more to come after Him. And so through Him, you and I will also be raised to new life and we will go to heaven through Christ. Folks, the gospel is good news. Because without God's intervention, no one would be saved. Now folks, let that sink in this morning. I hope you and I understand that. Without God's intervention in Christ, no one would be saved. Absolutely no one. Many in the world try to reduce Christianity down to lesser things, important things, but lesser things that are not the heart of the gospel. Some try to say that Christianity is just looking after the poor or trying to live a good life. The fact of the matter is while both of those are certainly important and should grow out of the gospel and out of our faith in Christ, they are not the gospel. To try to make them the gospel is every bit as much preaching a false gospel as was the case when the Judaizers went into the churches of Galatia preaching circumcision. What is the gospel? What is the good news that God wants to communicate to us in the word of God? What is the gospel? What is this good news that we celebrate at Easter? Well that's exactly what Paul is going to outline and talk about in the book of Romans. Now this morning I'm going to preach a little differently than I normally do because normally we will take one Pericope of scripture One unit of thought in a single chapter And we will develop that We will pull points out of that one section But this morning we're going to do that from Three chapters of the book of Romans. And what that means is that I'm not going to uh, be able to spend really sufficient time in, in any of the passages. But what I want you to be able to do is walk away this morning with kind of an overview of the gospel truth. Now no doubt you've experienced somebody saying to you at some point, I am going to tell you the gospel truth. And what they're saying is, what I'm about to tell you, you can take it to the bank. Well, what Paul is talking about here is the gospel truth. And the first thing I want you to see in the gospel truth is the gospel's power. The gospel's power. Look back again at verse 14 and following. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith Right off the bat here, Paul is setting the table He establishes the wonder of the gospel in verses 16 and 17 The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and then uh, to the Gentile. Those two verses are going to be the verses of what Paul is going to flesh out in the rest of the book of Romans. I want you to notice in verse 14 that he views his work in getting the gospel out as a debt or an obligation. I want you to think a moment about debts and obligations. We we think about debts. We, We know our nation's debt now has surpassed $17 trillion. Think of your own family's debt. But Paul says here that he understands it, that we have another kind of debt, another kind of obligation. And that's what he's addressing here. If you have been born again, you have a greater debt. You and I have a debt, an obligation to tell others about Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we saw repeatedly that the election of Israel wasn't simply for privilege, but also for responsibility. If you're a believer, that means you are among the elect, which is a very biblical doctrine. You can't deny election without denying the very Bible you hold in your hands. But if you're among the elect, you are intended to use that position of election in service unto the Lord. Paul always saw himself as a debtor to Christ. Not in a sense of buying salvation. Of course he doesn't mean that. That would be against his very arguments in this book. But he saw himself as a, a, a debtor to Christ in terms of his life service. He never got over the fact that somebody would take a sinner like him. In 1 Timothy he refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. That God would choose to reach down in his mercy and grace and save somebody like Paul. He never got over that. You and I shouldn't get over it either. And so in verse 15 we see his eagerness over this matter. He wanted to go to Rome to preach Jesus. One way or the other, he wanted to go to Rome. You see, being the capital of the Roman Empire, which was the superpower of the day, that meant that Rome was not only the capital of the Roman Empire, but essentially Rome was the capital of the world back then. And Paul always wanted to take the gospel to the great cities of his day. Cities like Ephesus and and Athens and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica. But he especially wanted to take the gospel to Rome. It'd be like us thinking today... What if I could go to Washington, D.C. and get the president on down and all the senators and all the house representatives and anybody in public office. What if we could preach the gospel to them and a number of them would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What kind of implications could that have for the world? Well that's the way Paul was thinking here. The reason for his eagerness again to go to Rome is stated in verse 16 because of the gospel's power. He's not ashamed. He's under obligation because of the nature of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, unless God opens uh, eyes and hearts, man won't receive it. What's man do? Well, he talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, when we come preaching the cross, to the Greek it's foolishness, and, and, and to the Jew it's a stumbling block, but to those who are saved, it is the power of God. Indeed, it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Martin Luther is one who experienced this, this very transformation. He was a monk and he was trying to do everything that he knew to try to win God's favor. And then on one occasion he was studying this very passage. And as he was studying this very passage, God got a hold of his heart and God gripped him. And he came under conviction and he saw that all of the monkery in the world, as he said, could not win his place in heaven. He finally understood that salvation was grace. It was through faith in Christ and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And he came to faith in Christ and he was gloriously saved. And then verse 17 right here became the theme verse of his life. That the righteous are to live by faith. Now notice what he points out here. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because... It it does something. And notice what it is that it does. It reveals the righteousness of God. Not man's righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And he points out that the righteousness of God is not earned by us. It's established only through Christ. Well, as he sets the table in what he's going to be discussing in the book of Romans... Where does he begin after setting the table? After talking about the gospel's power. Secondly, he moves on to man's problem. Man's problem. And that begins in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice his approach here. He does not do what many preachers and teachers do today. So often today when somebody is preaching, what will they do? They will dangle some kind of carrot before you. Oh, if you will only come to faith in Jesus, please come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ, he'll do this for you. Or he'll do that for you. He'll give you this. Or, uh, you know, he'll heal your marriage or your body or he'll help your bank account. Or, uh, they offer all sorts of carrots of why people ought to come to faith in Christ. Paul doesn't do that. He wants us rather to see in the first three chapters that we have sinned against a holy God. We have offended a holy God... And we are in deep weeds. We are in trouble. We are are undone. It's like Isaiah, when Isaiah got that vision of God in the temple, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. He thought he was going to die. Paul wants us to see ourselves in that light. Folks, we're in trouble. He wants us to see, before he gets to the good news, he wants us to see the total depravity of man and our absolute inability to be able to do anything to earn our salvation. He's quite clear in man's predicament. In chapter 1, he's going to largely deal with the Gentile, the pagan world. In chapter 2, he's going to largely deal with the religious world. Now, no doubt he primarily had in mind the Jew, but it could be more than that. Anybody who thinks by a religion, they're going to make it. So he deals with the irreligious and the religious, the pagan and religious. The one who's supposed to be righteous. He takes them in turn. First of all, beginning in verse 18, he addresses the pagan man. And notice what he says about the pagan man. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now I think at this point something needs to be said about wrath. Because we tend to think in human categories. When we think of wrath, what comes to mind is our own wrath. We think back to a time, for instance, that we lost our temper and how ugly it was and how ashamed of ourselves we were afterwards. And so when God's wrath is mentioned, we tend to think of wrath in those kind of categories. That's a huge mistake. God's wrath is perfectly righteous and holy just like His love and mercy is perfectly righteous and holy. And so when we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about God throwing some kind of temper tantrum. And also if we have the right picture of God's wrath, uh, even if we do have some kind of right picture of it, we don't like to discuss it after all. It's a whole lot better for us or pleasing to us, we think, to talk about is love. But like J.I. Packer says, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. Arthur Pink wrote, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to anger, fury, and the wrath of God than there are to His love and His tenderness. Now once we understand the concept of God's wrath and the frequency with which it's mentioned in the Bible, we also need to understand something about the word itself. There's two words for wrath. First of all, there's the word thumos. Thumos. A sudden outbreak of God's anger like back in in, in the book of Exodus. When they made the golden calf. When God was giving the Ten Commandments. and, and, And God's anger broke out against the community and a number of them died. That's an example of thumos. Well other than the book of Revelation that word for wrath is only used one other time in the New Testament. The word that he uses here is the word Orge. And that stands for the patience of God. God is patient with man over time. Until slowly but surely God finally says enough is enough. And he brings judgment. And so orge means kind of an anger or a wrath that is like something ripening on the vine. Until Finally, it's ready to be picked. Again, that's the word here. God's wrath is more of a settled conviction that's built up over time versus a temporary blowing of the stack. Now what are the facts in the case against the human race that Paul wants us to understand here? It's not simply a matter of God's wrath being stored up for a later time like the end of the ages. Paul says here that there is a present manifestation of it. In fact, he uses the present tense. Not the future tense, but the present tense. Meaning that God's wrath is even now being poured out on the unbelieving world. It's revealed, he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Charles Hodge uh, takes these terms to mean wickedness toward God and then wickedness toward men. Cultures that have no respect for God will likewise have no respect for human life. It's also against those who suppress the truth. Truth can't be changed or undone, but it can be pushed away. Paul says that's what unbelievers are trying to do. They are trying to sweep God's truth under the rug. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God has made it plain to them, he says. And that's in the emphatic position. How has God made it evident? First, through the conscience, the human conscience. God has put a knowledge of himself in us. As the Bible says, he has written eternity on our hearts. Then he adds to that, because that which is known about God is evident in creation. It's like King David said in Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands day to day. Pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation itself is preaching a sermon. Every day and every night, creation is preaching a sermon, and that sermon is declaring both the existence of God and the glory of God. What is evident about God in creation? He says, first of all, his invisible attributes. We, we see design and order in nature, and we know that, that the God who made it all is a God of order and beauty. The invisible points, uh, the, the, the visible rather, points to the invisible finger of God. Creation tells us more about God. It points out His eternal power. We look at the vastness of creation and we know that the one who spoke it all into existence must have total and complete authority. Then also his divine nature is mentioned in verse 20. When we look at creation we see something wonderful about God's nature. Regardless of how men choose to live we see certain aspects of the fact that God is kind and good. The Bible says he has made his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives his sunshine to the just and the unjust. Theologians refer to that as common grace. Creation itself reveals that we serve a kind, generous, benevolent God. Even to those who don't know Him. Now that leads to the verdict. Men are without excuse. Men are absolutely without excuse circle that in your Bible somebody says well what about the pagan tribesman who's never heard Romans 1 says he is without excuse because if he responds to the amount of light that God's given him in general revelation then God is going to give him more light The Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius would be two prime examples of that in the book of Acts. And so we can conclude that if somebody dies without hearing about Jesus, it is at least in part because they didn't even respond to the amount of light that they had. They are without excuse. Notice what's said about them. They did not honor God. As God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Even though creation itself testifies to the presence of God, men don't seek Him. They do not give thanks. And what's being communicated here is an attitude of ingratitude. Ingratitude towards God. And so the result is, Paul says in these verses, they become futile in their speculations. Life becomes about man. Man becomes vain and puffed up, and we forget about God. Their heart was darkened, he says. They became fools, they became idolaters. Folks, we need to understand something. We need to understand that mankind is incurably religious. Our missionaries, when they go into the deepest, darkest jungles and send reports back, you know what they find? They find oftentimes that those tribes are idolaters. They've made some kind of idols, they're having some kind of religion. Man's incurably religious. But he says what man loves to do rather than submitting to the God of the Bible, what man loves to do is create his own kind of God. Boy, that certainly makes religion a whole lot more convenient, doesn't it? If I can make a God in my image, then I can kind of have some say-so. I can kind of design things the way I want it to be. Now after stating that unbelievers are presently under the wrath of God, he proceeds to show the evidence of how we know this to be true. He says three times God gave them over. The actions of lost people reveal that when they turn their back on God repeatedly, they reach a point where God turns His back on them. As Augustine said, the punishment for sin is sin. The punishment for sin is sin. In other words... God greases the sliding board for them in the direction they want to go. He turns them over to their own way. Would God do that? Well, Listen to Psalm 81. Psalm 81, God says, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, when God displays His wrath and gives people over to their own ways, what are those ways? Well, He mentions rapid, uh, rampant lust, then degrading passions. Society calls homosexuality and lesbianism alternative lifestyles. That sounds so kind and gentle and benign. But the Bible calls it here degrading passions. William Barclay notes that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were either bisexual or homosexual. It was said of Julius Caesar that he was every woman's man and every man's woman. what else does man give it? What, what else rather does, does God? Give people over to. He begins talking in verse 28 that he gives them over to depraved minds. You see, when we turn from light, when we turn from God's light, we inevitably walk out into the darkness. We end up with a depraved mind, a mind that's not functioning as God intended. He says being filled. And after he says being filled, he lists rapidly 21 different vices here that were so well known to society back then and are well known to society today. And then he closes that section by saying not only are they is mankind caught up in one or more of these 21 vices but they descend even further because they end up giving hard, hearty approval to those who practice them. It's the old saying misery loves company. Now what is the verdict of men who do all of the above? He says they are currently and presently under the wrath of God. They do not know God and they are under the wrath of God. Folks, please understand how he's emphasizing that here. You say but a governor came on TV and said such and such or a state senator said such and such and the president said such and such or my teacher who stood before the classroom said such and such. The Bible says here they do not know God and they are currently even now under the wrath of God. Will they accept that? Of course not. Because he's already said that they've been given a depraved mind. Folks, this is not my verdict. This is not your verdict. This is what the scripture in Romans 1 is saying is the case with mankind. When we reject God's truth and we choose rather to go our own way, this is where we end up. Well, it's not just the pagan. Look at what he says about the religious man in in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another. You condemn yourself because you, the the judge, practice the very same things. Having pointed out that the Gentiles are under the wrath of God and their lifestyles prove it, Paul turns a corner in Romans 2 to talk about the Jew who thinks he's justified simply because of the law. And he says here they're just as guilty, guilty in a different way, but guilty nonetheless. Human beings never seem to tire. Of pointing the finger while making excuses for their own behavior. Seldom do we want to see our own guilt or admit to it. Reminds me of what was said about Al Capone. One of this nation's most sinister and violent criminals. He was on the FBI's enemy number one list back in the early 20th century. There in Chicago being in the gangs and the mob. When Al Capone was finally caught and going to prison, he gave an assessment of himself. He said, I've spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time, and all I get now is abuse. People try to excuse their own behavior. Look at what Paul's saying here. Here's a person who thinks they are righteous before God because they keep the law. There's certain things they do and don't do. It's the thought in mind, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. So I must be okay. Well, in verse 4, if somebody is a religionist and they don't, uh, and they do not have the judgment of, of God against them yet. Notice what he says. It is only because of the kindness and the patience of God. Reminds me of 2 Peter three nine, where it says God is long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. And Peter is saying that's why we haven't seen him come back yet. Because he's long-suffering and patient. Those without Christ who are trusting in something else to save them need to see that they are storing up wrath against themselves. They're investors. But they're not investing in the stock market or in a bank. They're investing in God's bank. They're storing up wrath against themselves. They're sending up to God the very evidence that God will have one day to use against them. God's the righteous judge. In the day of his future judgment, he will make no mistakes. Look at what Paul says here in verses 6 to 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace. Peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God knows those who belong to Him and those who don't. He knows those who practice righteousness. He's not talking about here a righteousness that is of their own, but rather a righteousness that is in their life because they are redeemed in Christ. And he knows those that are evil in their hearts, regardless of what kind of package they want to present on the outside. Now, just like the salvation of God is for the Jew first and then to the Gentile, notice what he says here the wrath of God is also for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. There's no partiality with God, he says. Now folks, I I want you to think a moment what a shock Paul's words would have been to the Jewish people of his day. An absolute shock. They would have said, do you not understand we are God's children? It's just like they told Jesus. They said, Jesus, do you not understand who it is that you're saying these things against? We are Abraham's children. And Jesus said, I tell you, God is able to raise up from these rocks children for Abraham. Paul wants them to see that God is completely impartial. He doesn't grade on a curve. He knows every heart, and He knows every heart perfectly. He knows your heart and my heart better than we know our own hearts. The law is not the determining factor in salvation. Verse 12, look what he says there in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified again Paul's argument that we'll continue to see is that the law is not the Savior it's never been intended to be the Savior now the law is good and holy and perfect as he's going to say in chapter 7 because after all it's God's law the fault is not with God's law the law's not a bad thing. Some people have not had the privilege of having the law. But that does not excuse. Those without the law will die without the law. They're still without excuse. Some people have the law and yet they still do wrong. They'll die as well. They're, they're guilty. The law in and of itself doesn't save. God gave the law for a purpose. As he said in the book of Galatians, the law was to be a tutor bringing one to Christ. It was never given to justify. It was to be that mirror that we could see all of our flaws and all of our sin and all of our shortcoming. And we would throw ourselves on the mercy of God. What they also needed to see is that while some of them... Have the law and still break the law. Then he says, there are some who obey the law without having a copy of it. How can that be? Because again, God's put it on our heart. Does this mean they're without sin? No, it's not his point at all. Rather, his point is that those without the knowledge of the law who break it will have an even greater accountability than those who do not have the advantage of having the law written down and yet they do a better job of keeping it. Folks, do you hear what he's saying to us? What he's saying to us The privilege you and I have of having the law and having a a copy of the scripture. What does that do for you? Does does that in and of itself justify you and me? No. It simply submits us to a higher standard because we have it. And so for us there's going to be a greater accountability than for somebody who doesn't have it. Well, the conclusion is stated over in in verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it's written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now folks, I'm pausing because I, I want you to understand the severity... Of this section of Paul's argument In fact we could go all the way up through verse 20 of chapter 3 It's like he just kind of wants us to push the pause button And hear what he's saying What he's saying is you and I are in trouble Mankind is really, really, really in trouble there is none who are righteous, no, not one, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you got religion, whether you don't have religion. Mankind is in deep trouble because we have sinned and offended a holy God, and there is absolutely not one ounce of anything you can do to get yourself out of that predicament. God would be perfectly just. If 100% of the human race died and went to hell. God, you're you're unjust. No. That would simply be man getting what man deserves. There'd be no injustice in that. And he wants us to pause at this phrase of the argument and and just kind of really take in what the Bible is saying about us because we don't want to admit that. Man wants to say, but I'm pretty good. Look at the way I've lived my life. Preacher, what are you talking about? You're not preaching to us. You must be preaching to Somebody out on the streets of Las Vegas or something, you're not preaching to us. I'm pretty good. Look at what I've done. Look at what I do every day. Look at what I do in the PTA. Look at what I do in the the various businessmen's clubs, the Rotary Club. Things like that to, to do kind things in the community. Look at all these things that I do. Preacher, you don't know what you're saying. Paul knows exactly what he's saying. Because what he's writing is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, to use that phrase I used before, you and I are in deep weeds. And what if the story ended right there? How terrible that would be. Aren't you glad it doesn't end right there? Let's look at God's prescription. Turn over to verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, the very worst point God enters the picture and intervenes his grace amen righteousness is not earned it is imputed But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Look at those words again. But now. Those are the sweetest words in the Bible. But now introduces the plan of God to save us. The righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God is apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Do you hear that? All along, the Old Testament was trying to tell us something. All along, the law and the prophets were testifying to this. That's why Jesus, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, when he joined up with those disciples who were walking, the Bible says he took the scripture and from Moses he began showing them how the scripture testified of him. All along. You know, lest we be too hard on the Jew, again, folks, let's, let's understand how hard it is for religious people to swallow the fact that they cannot do anything to contribute to their salvation. We want to do something, something to put a little bit into our account to earn our way. God, can I do something to make it happen? No. It's of God. It's not of human works. It is apart from the law, he says here. Look at verse 22. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the subject of redemption. We are justified in Him. Christ is the propitiation, He says here. Let's quickly talk about some of these theological words justification. He says here, through Christ we're justified. That's a courtroom word. Here we are in God's courtroom. We're condemned and we're under the sentence of spiritual death. But God justifies us because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. My punishment fell on Christ at the cross. And His righteousness fell on me. He paid. The penalty in God's courtroom for me. The next word is redemption. That was a slave market word. Slaves would be redeemed out of the market. They would be purchased. But This redemption is even better because in the slave market you would go and redeem a slave. So that slave instead of being that other person's slave could now be your slave. But what Christ has done is redeem us to set us free from the curse of the law. To set us free from the bondage of sin and death in the law. The next word is propitiation. That word was used to refer to the taking away of wrath. Remember, we're under wrath. And Jesus Christ is the one that God's wrath fell upon on the cross. That's why He cried out in that horrible moment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's justice had to be satisfied. Christ, therefore, took the wrath of God, all of the wrath of God upon Himself, and His death on the cross perfectly satisfied God's righteousness. He is our propitiatory sacrifice verse 25 points out, God in his forbearance passed over the sins previously committed. You say, what in the world is he talking about there? What do you mean God passed over? Go back to the Old Testament again. Every year the high, on the day, the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, present that sacrifice... And for one more year, God would pass over judgment and the sins of his people would be covered. Every year, covered. One more year. Next year, sacrifice. One more year. It was covered. But then when Jesus Christ came on the scene, he didn't simply cover our sin. He took sin away. Once and for all, he paid the price for sin. When he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. No other sacrifice for sin ever from that point on. No other sacrifice ever had to be made. God passed over it, passed over it, passed over it. He was patient. Finally sent his son who had taken away. What's the outcome of this? Look at verse 27. There is no room for boasting whatsoever. If somebody is going to boast, as Paul said to the Galatians, we boast only in Jesus Christ and only in the cross of Christ. Folks, bragging on Jesus is the only bragging we can do that's legitimate. Because again, you go back to what he's just said before he got to this good news portion of chapter 3. And we're in deep weeds. We're in problems. We're in a predicament we can't climb out of. And in that predicament, we die, we are eternally separated from God. And at that point, God steps in and he does it all through Christ. So the only boasting we have is in Jesus Christ. What's God do now? Same thing Peter did. On the day of Pentecost. Remember when Peter was preaching about Jesus on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit fell on, on the multitudes. And a number of them were pricked to their heart. You remember what they asked Peter? They said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? There wasn't anything to do. What Peter respond by saying? Repent and believe. That's what the gospel calls on us to do. Repent and believe. That's the good news at Easter. That's the gospel truth. Let's pray. The question for you this morning, has God granted This new life to you. Have you been born again? Ask him to convert your soul. And give you life. If you've never experienced this new life in Christ. Ask him to do that for you. I hope I've helped you to see this morning. Why we celebrate Why what we celebrate at Easter is such a big deal to the church. Because the good news is that Christ died. He was buried and was raised to life again. Salvation is of the Lord. Have you experienced that salvation? And if you have... I want you to think about something This Easter season Don't assume that everybody around you knows What the gospel is all about Everywhere Paul went If there was a Jewish synagogue in whatever city he went to He went there first They knew the scripture They did not know this Don't assume that everybody knows. Ask God to give you boldness and clarity to speak about it. I wonder this morning if nothing else for for Christians. Shouldn't your heart and my heart simply be filled with an incredible amount of gratitude? Just incredible gratitude. I hope that will be your response. Lord, speak to hearts as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? I'd love to pray with you. If you would say, Pastor, I, I don't know Christ. I'd love to pray with you. Christians, I would just ask you right there in your seat, you as we're singing, just a heart of gratitude when when we think of the trouble that we were in, and God saved us from that. When you when you just when you just think about that, wow, wow. When you think of what could what could have happened to you, hmm. Eternal separation. Hell. But God in His mercy and His grace saved you. Gratitude. As we sing, just express that gratitude.